This is Truth Encounter, and one of our major goals is to help you learn how to take biblical truth and live it in your secular marketplace. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and following, we find God addressing such concrete issues as to whether or not we can charge one another interest, or how much of our neighbor's garden we can pick. God got down to the nitty-gritty with his people in the Old Testament. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he introduces this section of Deuteronomy with a practical illustration from coaching his youngest son, Joshua, in basketball. One of the things that's true of almost all basketball players that are right-handed is that they only go to their right. In fact, uh, often when I was playing at the Word of Life camp, you would be guarding a guy and you would find out if he was a point guard that he always took off to his right because he wasn't comfortable with his left hand. In other words, he was a one-sided player. And what you did as soon as you found that out, you just stay over there on the right and you could, you could, it just took half his game away. And so I started telling Josh when he was real small, working on that basketball, you got to learn how to use that left hand. I'll never forget when Dave Lauer and I coaching these different guys that are on our team, we get them to come in from the left side and we say, we want you to do a left-handed layup. None of them would do it. In other words, they all come in from the left side and put up a right-handed layup. Why? Because it feels awkward. It feels crazy. It just doesn't feel right. But you keep working with them, especially if, you're, if they're going to grow at all in their basketball skills. They need to learn how to shoot a left-handed shot. And I've talked to Joshua right up there in the court. I'll look him in the eyes and say, Joshua, you've got to learn how to use that left hand. In fact, Dave Lowry shared one time in his soccer game that he got hurt when he was playing, I think maybe he was even in junior high soccer back in Pennsylvania, and he hurt his right foot. He couldn't kick with it. It wasn't hurt enough that he couldn't play, but he couldn't get a real strong kick on the goal. And i never forget Dave sharing. That just changed his game because it made him use his left leg. And he got so that he could kick as well with his left leg as he could with his right. And that's an example of how you can teach somebody, teach somebody, teach them, and they're supposed to change. I was watching Joshua playing, and he drove, and he comes right up with his left hand. He looks kind of like those guys in the NBA, only on a little bit shorter scale. And he was using that left hand. In fact, he really used the left hand much more naturally than I use my left hand. What I'm saying is that I taught Joshua something. He learned it. But the evidence that he learned it was that he could do it in real life. That's true of everything. It, every education depends upon what's happening in real life, except when it comes to religion, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to church. One of the things that really concerns me, and over the last six months, it's been something the Lord's been burning into my soul, is the fact that, that in, in church and in studying the Bible, we've got hours and hours and hours and hours of training. We've got hours of studying the Bible. And yet if we were to ask, have people learned how to spiritually use their left hand? Has the coach given them something that they need to learn, and did they do it? And is there a growth process? And one thing I want you to feel is, is that when you first try to use that left hand because the coach teaches you that that's the way you need to play the game, it feels really awkward. And that's going to be true spiritually too. And often when we try to do something that we know that we need to do it, but it feels so awkward, we quit on it. I want to ask you this. What can you remember from what you heard maybe last week? Or think of something maybe that I've taught you over the last six months. 
I want you to just take a minute. I want you to quietly think in your own heart, what can you remember about something that you've learned from the teaching of the Word of God and a change, a concrete, specific change that took place in your life? It's not a trick question because most of you would probably have some major things, but I want you to take a minute now and just think. How many of you have heard the Bible taught sometime within the last six months? You've heard it on the radio, you've heard Swindoll and John McGarth, everyone else on the radio. I want you to think of what are some of the concrete changes that have taken place in your life because of hearing that. One of the things that the Lord's really been convicting me about, and I'm going to try to illustrate that for you when we study Deuteronomy 23 today, is the Lord's been convicting me about the fact that it's really easy to get all the information down and you study the text and you really know everything that, it, that is in there. You really know it in your head. But when it comes to getting it into your left hand, when it comes to getting it into your feet, that's a totally different story. You say, Dave, how do you know that the Lord is so concerned about just everyday practical living? Because if we open up the major portions of the Old Testament, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23. One of the things I noticed in the book of Deuteronomy and throughout the Old Testament is that God deals with all kinds of little nitty-gritty things, little common things that have to do with everyday living. And the passage today, in fact, for the next several chapters, we're going to go through one subject after another. In fact, they really don't even fit together topically. In other words, the Lord's going to jump from one activity to the next. He's just going to jump from one concern that he has to another. It's almost like a daddy that feels like he's getting his son ready to go away to school. And he's trying to say, boy, remember this, remember this, remember this. I want you to do this. In Deuteronomy 23, the, the Lord is going through some of the practical areas that he's concerned that his people be obedient to him in and that they be different from the other nations. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 23. We begin with how do you treat aliens? Now, when I mention aliens in English, we think of what? We think of invaders from outer space, right? If I tell you we're going to watch a movie on aliens, we think in terms of aliens from outer space. But the word alien means a foreigner. And the word specifically in Hebrew means someone that's, that's just not part of the home group, someone that's not part of the home family. And I want you all to stop and think, how do you feel towards someone that's just not part of your home group? That's the foreigner. How do you feel when you travel to a different part of the country and people are not wearing cowboy boots and they don't wear jeans? In other words, they're wearing three-piece suits and wingtips and stuff like that. How does that make you feel? It makes you feel strange. When you go to a party and you don't know everyone there and maybe you jumped up your social brackets a little bit and so that you're with a bunch of the rich people, how do you feel? You feel estranged. You feel out of place. I want you to stop and think about that feeling of being alien, of being different, of being a foreigner. Now what the scripture does over and over again is tell us that as God's Old Testament people back in the Old Testament needed to be really concerned about the way they treated the foreigner. Now specifically in this case, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 15, the scripture talks to us about a foreigner that's really in need. It's a slave that's run away. And the slave evidently was being oppressed and hurt, and so he ran into Israel to find refuge. What should they do about him? Should they ship that slave back? Should they send them back to the oppressor? Look what the Lord says. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 15. If a slave has taken up refuge with you, 
Do not hand him over to his master. Let him live among you wherever he likes and in whatever town he chooses. Do not oppress him. Very straightforward word. It's talking about a situation where throughout the ancient Near East there was slavery. It was a very common part of the ancient world. It was part of the Roman Greek world. It eventually became part of the United States world. And what the scripture taught the Old Testament Israelites is that if someone was released, if they were able to get away from their master, if they were able to flee into Israel, Israel was supposed to be a place of what? It was supposed to be a place of safety. It was supposed to be a place of shelter. It was supposed to be a place where a runaway slave could find deliverance and help. And the Lord says, and this was contrary to all the practice throughout the ancient Near East, the usual practice was that they had extradition treaties, just like the United States does, between like the United States and Canada. Usually it works in criminal situations, like you have a treaty that if a criminal flees to another country, if the country has a treaty with them, that they can extradite that criminal back to the country where they committed a crime. In the ancient world, that would carry over into slave relations as well. So the countries would have covenants, they'd have treaties that if a slave ran into another country, that country would have a treaty to send them back. It was a very common thing among the Hittites. You can read about it in the other covenant documents of the ancient world. In Israel, though, the Lord said no. In Israel, the Lord says, I don't want you to have mutual extradition treaties concerning slaves with Israel and Assyria or with Israel and Egypt. No, in Israel it was supposed to be different. If a slave was being oppressed in Egypt, if they were under the grind of a taskmaster, if their backs were bleeding from whips, those slaves were supposed to be able to run out of Egypt, run up through the Gaza Strip into the, what was called the Promised Land, and they were free. So I want you to notice these verses. It says they can go and live anywhere they want. Let them live wherever they desire, and don't oppress them. What is God showing us? He cares about the oppressed. He cares about the one that's being abused. And God's people in the Old Testament were a place where the abused could find refuge. In fact, a lot of churches in our present day have used this verse to do what they call asylum. They give asylum to those that have fled. You say, Dave, what does this have to do with us? It shows us the heart of God. You say, have we have a church family been involved in this at all? Yes. Arvid Westfall worked down in Central America, in Guatemala specifically, with a group of Indians. Many of those Indians that he was working with, many of whom became believers, were oppressed by guerrilla warfare. And they were oppressed by, by political revolutions. And many of those Indians fled to the United States. And the United States had to have hearings, extradition hearings, to determine whether or not those Indians should be sent back to Guatemala. Well, Arvid has spent hours and hours flying between here and Arizona back and forth. Why? Because he can translate, he knows the language, and he's been able to represent these Indians in court to make sure that there was a fair hearing, to be able to determine if their lives really were in danger in Central America so that they would be given asylum in the United States. So there's a very concrete way that the heart of a believer today reflects the heart that was true among God's Old Testament people. Let me share with you something else. Do you know that one of the greatest problems in reaching a black person in the United States today is because believers under the New Covenant didn't listen at all to what this verse is saying? Louis Farrakhan has galvanized 
the black male and been able to gather crowds like you couldn't believe. It's, he gathers crowds bigger than Malcolm X ever gathered. Across this land, every city in America where Farrakhan speaks, you've got tremendous numbers of black males coming to hear him. Why? Because he preaches in the name of a supposed Islam, which is a mixture of black pride and black culture. You know why he has such a hold? Because the Christian culture, the Christian culture supposedly based upon the Bible, allowed slavery to take place. The Civil War, thousands died over that. And the reason that there's so much animosity, and see, we can automatically jump and say, yeah, but they're unjust, and we can't pay what our ancestors did, and that's true. But I want us to think about our own attitudes, and we need to think about history. Because this isn't something distant from me. I went to a Christian school. I went to a Christian evangelical school. And we learned the Bible. But I was taught in that school that blacks were not full-blooded persons. They were not made in the image of God. They looked upon them as being a little bit slightly higher than animals. I heard that taught. I want you to know that that teaching is, is hellish. It's wrong. A friend of mine who graduated from Dallas Seminary went out to pastor a church in the South. Going through the book of Genesis, he came to the curse upon Ham. And he showed that the curse on Ham was really a curse on Canaan. And it's followed out in the Old Testament with what happened as we studied in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, we've learned about how the Lord said that you're going to have to deal with the Canaanites. And my friend taught this group of Bible-believing Christians that the curse of Ham was not a curse against the blacks. He was called in after he did that service. Several of the men there. They said, you will never teach like that again. Because we've been taught all of our lives that that's a curse against the black race. The curse of Ham is a curse against the African. It's a curse against the black. And that's demonic. And they're evil. They're intrinsically evil. If you're going to teach like that, you're out of here. My friend said, well, I might as well be out of here now. The guy that was leading the charge against my friend was a guy that was paying the bill for him right at the time to build his house. It was a leading elder in their group that had provided money for my friend to build his house. And the Lord put things right in the line for my friend. It was, do you teach what the Bible says? The Bible does not say there's a curse on the black. It was a curse that was already fulfilled against the Canaanite many centuries ago. In fact, even if it was, the scripture says that we're all under the curse. That we're all cursed in sin. That we're all have sinned and come sure of the glory of God. But Jesus, our precious Savior, died and shed his blood for red and yellow, black and white. We sing it as a little kid's song. And so my friend said, brothers, I love you and I'm devoted to being here. But I want you to know that if we're going to be a Bible church, then we're going to have to teach what the Bible says. And I will be here to teach the Word of God next Sunday. Or I will be somewhere else in this area teaching what the Word of God says, but we're going to be a Bible church. Only about one guy left, the guy that was paying the bill for his house. And my friend has been there for many, many years, faithfully teaching the Word of God. And the man who had that tremendous conflict over some very deep issues in his soul, one day came to my friend and apologized and admitted that he was truly wrong in having that attitude. You know, that's what we need. 
Now, I, wanna, I want you to stop and think. You know, it's really easy to talk about the treatment of aliens in the abstract. How do you treat those that are different than you? That's really what it's about. Different social stratus, different color of skin, different dress, different haircuts. How do you treat people that are different than you? How do you treat people that, 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 that have needs? The challenge for me in this issue of how do I treat the alien, how do I, it, it relates to students. You know, when I was a student, I, 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 it was an incredible thing to be able to have a meal. Now that Mary and I are established, I'm old. And I'm established. But I can remember when I was a student, when I, when I went to bare wall departments and everything. You know some of the ways that we can provide an alien refuge is just to have students out. Some of you that are older, that, that are so established, do you look around on Sunday morning, find out maybe a young student, do you know what it means to have someone that has a home-cooked meal and invites them in? I want to share something with you. You provide refuge for the stranger. It'll hurt sometimes. Sometimes you'll be abused. But most of the time, in the long-run scheme of things, you'll be the one that's blessed. And you know what? When we do that concrete thing, we meet the needs of the stranger, then we show that God is truly among us, that God's really working in our heart. The next area the Lord got into here is an area that we've had come up again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. It has to do with this involvement with foreign worship. Only in these next couple of verses, we have kind of a strange twist. It says, No Israelite man, verse 17 of Deuteronomy 23, or woman is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or of a male prostitute into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them. They're an abomination. Both of them are an abomination. First of all, let's try to clarify what was happening back in, the Deuteron in Deuteronomy about the shrine prostitute. Remember, all the way through the book, we've been learning about the Canaanite worship, and we've learned that their worship was a worship of fertility. It was a worship of sexuality. And what would happen is that they would have people involved in their worship that would become cultic shrine prostitutes. In fact, in Hebrew, they call them kadosh, and the, the word kadosh means the holy ones. And so you can, I want you to see this strange twist on all this. Here you have a woman, and I also want you to see that they use men for this as well. They would have these men be brought to the temple, these women brought to the temple, and they would be the set-apart ones. They would be called the kadoshim, the holy ones, and they would devote their lives to sexual immorality. People would come to the temple. In fact, all the way through the Old Testament, God warns the men of Israel from going to these temples and having such a relations with the Kedosh, with the Holy One. And what I want you to say, I want you to see this strange twist on things because you've got something that's perverted, that's twisted, that's hellish, only now it's made a sacred thing. It's made a holy thing. It's made a religious thing. And I want you to see what God at the end of this passage does. He says, that's an abomination to me. And, and what God is saying in that is, that makes me sick to my stomach. That's what the word in Hebrew connotes. It means that this is something that just I detest. Makes me sick to think about. It. In fact, the word that's used for the, uh, the male that's involved in this kind of prostitution is a dog. Some of you in your King James Version have, and don't bring the hire of a dog. 
The word dog was like a slang way to refer to a male prostitute. And what I want you to see is that things that, that different communities that are tearing down the walls of morality across our land, different ideas like male uh, homosexuality and female homosexuality, and, and there's, a, there's a thought like this is, this is okay, everything is fine. I want you to see that from the beginning of time, from the ancient days of Israel, cultures have wrestled with little boys that have been taken and abused. And that problem is incredibly intense in the United States of America. In cities, we have boys that are taken off the streets and they're used for prostitution. Any major city in the United States has that. Dallas is no exception. The Lord is saying among God's people, this is an abomination. We need to be sick to our stomach over it. And one of the things that we need to be very careful that we don't just become immune to it, which is what's happening in our culture. It just doesn't bother us anymore. The most horrible things imaginable can be presented in the media. It just doesn't do anything to us. Remember learning how to use our left hand? We need to realize this should make a change in us. We need to see the heart. And I want to point something out. This is very important. I want to point out, I want you to see that God says that immorality was related to religion. Immorality was related to spiritual desires. It's a connection that I've stressed with you again and again, but I've been aware again. It's so important for you to understand it. The reason is your pastor teacher, I'm so concerned that, we, that the Spirit of God grabs your heart and makes your heart sing pray to the Lord Jesus, and makes your heart hunger for his word, and makes your heart hunger to pray, and makes your heart hunger to be with, with other believers, because your life depends upon it, and if you don't do that, you will be devoted to immorality. You see, in every one of your lives, there, there's two dimensions. There's one dimension, like in my own life, I'm devoted to Mary, I'm devoted to my family, I'm devoted to being morally pure, I'm devoted to being a family man, I'm devoting to, keep, to keeping my marriage vows. And that's the Dave Wurzen that the Holy Spirit kindles in my heart and motivates in my heart and teaches me to learn to obey. But there's also a crazy Dave Wurzen. There's an insane Dave Wurzen. Same thing in your own life. There's thoughts that just come in from who knows where. Dirty thoughts, immoral thoughts. That's the way it is in all of your lives. I mean, most religious people don't even stop and think about that. They pretend that they don't have that. I want to share something with you. These issues are spiritual issues. A person whose heart is not tuned on the Lord, they will be tuned on Madonna. What has Madonna even used the name? What does Madonna mean? It's filled with religious connotations. She uses all kinds of religious paraphernalia, all kinds of symbolism. If you analyze all the big goddesses, all the big gods of the entertainment industry, they all use spiritual dimensions. It all had to do with devotion of heart. You come here and you sing, you clap, I love you, Lord, the Lord is beautiful. If you go to a rock concert devoted to that which is opposed to God, you worship that. It's all about worship. I want every one of you to realize that. You can't get away from worship in your life. You can't get away from this kadosh, this holy thing. And it's either going to be the true holy thing of heaven, which will be, produce purity and faithfulness and trust and love and strong families and kids that have moms and dads you can count on, or you're going to be controlled by this illicit, prostituting, evil thing. 
And we need to get really serious about it because God's family these days is just crumbling because the Canaanite fertility cults have just invaded our movement. Did you hear what Dave just said about the tendency of religion to deny the reality of the immoral sexual passions that lie within the human heart, while at the same time being dominated by this internal evil? That's why the grace of God is so important. It allows us to stop pretending. We don't have to deny the reality of what is going on inside. God already knows about it, and this is why he sent his son to die so that we could be forgiven. His son was raised from the dead, so that he can bring to life totally new passions and desires, passions for purity and holiness, instead of impurity and godlessness. If you think that biblical godliness is simply an issue of obeying some external rules and regulations, you will wake up some day to find yourself totally enslaved to your own pride your own passion for power and success, and very possibly a slave to your own sexual lust. Only the Spirit of God controlling things from the inside can bring true ethical integrity into any of our lives. Let's be honest in our spirits with the Spirit today.